two more conversations this afternoon, if you could take your seats. If I could grab your attention, please. Thank you very much. We have two more conversations this afternoon. Both excellent. Would you please welcome Washington po uh, Post columnist and professor at Georgetown University, E.J. Dion, and the domestic policy advisor to the president, Melanie Barnes. Um, I just want you to know that the theme of the day is life is unfair. Um, I say that because, first speaking for myself alone, first I have to come after Walter Isaacson, who is smart enough to explain Einstein to dummies. And then I have to come after Bob Schieffer, who is one of the best interviewers on the face of uh, God's earth. And then Melody and I, have to come after Jeff Canada and Roland Fryer, who got a standing ovation from this crowd, and then after uh, Nick and Cheryl. Uh, and so the only thing I can say is thank God for Melody. I'm glad uh, that uh, she is here. It's sort of like getting a, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, give Melody a hand. <laughs> sort of like we got a great speaking slot for you. You know, this guy, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, then you, you know. Uh, so we are very happy to be here today, and Aspen is a wonderful place. I was thinking of Melody's colleague, David Axelrod's favorite line about Washington and its focus on winning and polling, and he said every day is election day in Washington. Every day is a seminar or a concert at Aspen, so I hope you enjoy uh, your time here. Absolutely. Um, I just want to start, I want to kind of back into our discussion. Both of us, we discovered, are children of teachers. Both our moms uh, were teachers. You grew up in Richmond. You went to the University of Michigan, and then uh, you went to the University of North Carolina, then to Michigan for law school. Who do you root for, I wanted to ask you. But could Carolina, you of course. Uh, um, how, how did your background, oh, and then you also were in first grade, the first year of busing in uh, in uh, Richmond. Um, can you talk about how that experience kind of got you to where you are? Where did you get a passion for these questions? Well, first of all, thank you so much. Thank you, Walter and David and everyone for having us here. And in particular, EJ and I have been saying for some time that we were going to get together and have a conversation, get together and chat. We just didn't know we'd be doing it <laughs> in front of so many people, but it's a pleasure to be here. Um, as EJ said, I grew up in Richmond. My mother is a teacher and has always had a passion for education and taught for the first uh, nine years of my life before she went back to school and got her master's degree and went on to become a curriculum specialist. But I think throughout her career has always in some way touched children. My dad was, actually I remember my father's graduation from college. And my dad was in the army and went back to school when I was an infant and working during the day, went to college at night, and then graduated from college when I was about four years old. 
and we talk about the kinds of investment this country has made in education, my father will say very aggressively and very firmly, thank God for the GI Bill and the importance that that's played and the importance that education has played in his life, in our life as a family. Um, and we see, I see that over and over and over, that story about education being the great equalizer. We heard, uh, we heard Jeff and Roland talk about it and the ticket to opportunity, the ticket to the middle class, the, certainly the importance in the African-American community, but we see it played out in community after community. And I think for me, as someone who left New York as a, an attorney in the private sector and went to Washington to do civil and constitutional rights work and thinking about issues through that lens, ultimately uh, working for Senator Kennedy on that set of issues, but then branching out and recognizing that civil rights and education are intertwined and that the moral and economic imperative around doing better for our kids in the area of education is critical. That without education, we can't expect our kids to have the kinds of opportunities that we want for them. That's been part of our narrative as a country. But at the same time, there's an economic imperative, both the economic security for children who become adults and become parents and have families, but also for the economic opportunity of our country. The way that education is connected to innovation, is connected to growth and competition and competitiveness for us as a nation. So I've, over my career, seen all of those things intertwined, and that gives me such great passion for this, both on the personal level, what it mean, has meant to our family, but also seeing this over and over and over again as I go to school after school after school around the country. Could you talk a little bit, you talked about your work for Senator Kennedy, which I think is when we first met. Um, liberals, I think, have gone through an evolution in their thinking about this, about this issue. Um, and their focus early on, for good reason, was on school integration. It was on underfunding of uh, a lot of poor school, schools in poor school districts. And certainly the No Child Left Behind Act has shaped the conversation around education for almost the past decade in this country. Now the good news about No Child Left Behind is that it focused the country on standards-based education, on accountability, and what Roland and Jeff were talking about, the necessity of closing the achievement gap. That's the thing that I think it was an important part of the conversation and started to change and started, I watched those difficult conversations in the Democratic caucus um, that took place as we got to passage, passage of No Child. Now the problems with No Child Left Behind are countless. One being the lack of funding around it, but two, the fact that it was so incredibly rigid. It was a cookie cutter formula to education that doesn't reflect what's actually going on in districts, what's going on in, in states, and 
Unfortunately, because it focused on failure and success and not excellence and growth, it has driven down standards in the United States. When you th think about the fact that eight states have dumbed down their standards around math, and 12 states have dumbed down their standards around reading as a direct result of No Child Left Behind, you realize that we have a problem on our hands that we have to reform. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater that focus on closing the achievement gap, but all the other parts of it are right in our sights in terms of the kinds of reforms that we need for K through 12 education. And what about those who say that the attacks on no child are primarily from people who simply don't want those kind of fixed standards, who don't want those accountability uh, standards. Again, you work for a guy who helped pass this thing. Um, do you, do you, what do you make of that criticism of that point of view? Well, I think, you know, change is hard and big change is harder. And getting it right, and again, I love the fact that we can play off of the conversation that Jeff and Roland were having around accountability, around data, around assessments, understanding how, what we have to do in the way that we get it right. We are trying to build education reform on that kind of evidence. But when you think about where we started 18 months ago, and the fact that we were able to use the Recovery Act and a $5 billion pot of funding in the Recovery Act to start moving states in the right direction. Um, with the Recovery Act dollars, we wanted to push those dollars out quickly because we had to save teacher jobs, and we're proud of the fact that we created or saved about 300,000 jobs in education. But we attached some measure of reform to that. At the same time, we used that $5 billion pot that's known as Race to the Top and a small sliver of that for a pot of money we call I3, or an Invest in What Works Fund, and we started to drive reform. Before we even put a dollar out of the door, we watched states start to change their policies, their laws, so that they could compete for these dollars in four different areas. One, we have to turn around our lowest performing schools, and that's something I hope we get to talk a little bit more about. We're talking about the 5% of the schools in this country that are the very worst. I'm not talking about schools where you say, oh, they're having a bad day or it's a mediocre school. I'm talking about schools that are disastrous for our children and we have to turn them around and we have to, based on evidence, use models to start to change that. So one, turning around those schools. Two, investing in and providing support for excellent teachers and leaders. We have always talked about the importance of teachers, but also excellent principals that are leading every school and sending a message through the bloodstream of those schools about collaboration, about professional development, about curriculum development, et cetera. Three, something Roland and Jeff also talked about, the importance of data. And I know that's an issue that kind of makes people's eyes glaze, glaze over a little bit. Not here, not here. <laughs> but the importance of data, not only for teachers to understand what's going on with their kids, but for parents to understand what's going on with their children as well. And then finally, standards and assessments, which ties to this movement that's been taking place around the country, led by governors, so it isn't top-down from Washington, but led by governors to set a college and career-ready standard for our schools. 
Those four assurances, as we call them, are at the basis for race to the top and the changes that we've seen states make already. And even though there are, there are people who are resistant to the kind of change uh, that you've talked about, we've also seen people come together in great numbers across different boundaries to work together to try and move forward in those areas of reform. How realistic is it to expect that the federal government can have an enormous impact in this area? Only 7% of the money in our schools comes from the federal government. In France, it said that at 10.15 in the morning in every school in France, every kid is turned to the same page of the same textbook. Now, I'm sure that's not true, but it's said, and there's, the principle is right, whereas we have a wildly decentralized system and only 7% of the money. How can the federal government drive that much change with such a relatively small share of the dollars? Well, if you remember the president's back-to-school speech yesterday, last year, I'm sorry, at the beginning of the school year, you would have thought that we were headed towards, you know, every student reading off the well, same they, page every day. Well, they we all had to, to listen to the president. Right, right? exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, but you're right. Small percentage of federal dollars are going to education. But again, this idea of competition and using federal dollars to try and leverage change. And Going back to what I was saying about race to the top, 32 states have already in some way started to change their laws around reform, you know, with regard to charter schools, with regard to use of data, breaking down that barrier that exists in many places between evaluating teachers and student performance. So we've been able to use federal dollars to drive that change, to increase competition, doing it again through that smaller fund that I talked about that we've used to leverage private dollars to a billion dollar fund, again, to get the juices flowing, to inspire change and competition. Now, one of the things people are so, um, people love formula money and for those who are in Congress, obviously, formula money means that everyone gets to take something home. But the reality is that with competitive dollars, we are in fact better able to affect the lowest performing schools and to make change where it is most desperately needed. Um, we were talking before about what I called the reverse Goldilocks effect of the Obama administration, and you're hearing some of that here, that the business guys say they're anti-business, folks on the left say they're in bed with business. People in this issue, the teachers say, why are you beating us up all the time? And other folks say, actually, they're really secretly in cahoots uh, with the teachers. How do you guys pull this off? This is a really amazing thing. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of talent to be able to do that. <laughs> um, I think the reality is for all of the big problems that we faced, and we faced them on day one. You know, a lot of people remember the inauguration and they think that, you know, that was a wonderful day and, you know, it was very exciting. What I think those, about 20 of us that walked into the White House on that day remember was the phone was ringing and there was someone on the other end saying, we've got a problem, you have to fix it. And those of us who were there saying, we don't even know where the restrooms are yet. Um, so, you know, government keeps on moving and that change and the big problems that were facing us slapped us in the face. And that meant that a lot of tough challenges had to be faced. But one of the things I remember was during that period of transition, uh, November, December, sitting in Chicago with the president before, or when he was president-elect, before he came to Washington, that he said, there are big problems and big challenges, bring them to me. Bring them to me and we are going to work to solve them. It will be difficult, some of our decisions will be unpopular, 
but bring me those cha challenges and what I can do to try and drive change and move us forward with the healthcare reform, education reform, which is one of the big four pillars in his agenda, and the list goes on from there, that will be critical. If I can do that, then I would have moved this country forward and set the proper foundation. So in answer to your question, the challenges were significant, but I think the reason that we have arrows and darts thrown at us from many different directions is because our approach has been to solve the problem, not necessarily to try and move or put our fingers to the wind and decide which decision was the most politic. And that because the decisions often are difficult, it means that people will be very uncomfortable with them. But ultimately, ultimately, we believe that we are moving forward and education reform is a prime example in the right direction. And the table is set for every person. If you care about children, if you care about educating children, then there is a seat at the table for you with us. I wanted to ask you about charters. There's a big push out of the race to the top money to encourage charters. And when we hear people like uh, Jeff Canada talk, you say, well, we should do lots and lots of charters. But there are a lot of charters that fail. There are a lot of charters that are not at all um, effective. Um, are we being, um, or are you being, uh, tougher on sort of traditional kind of schools than you are on charter schools? Are we gonna have the kind of accountability for charters that uh, we are looking for, for, uh, if you will, regular schools. Right, no, absolutely. I think people hear the first part of the sentence and they don't hear the second part of the sentence. And again, consistently, we've said, charter schools are an important facet of, our of the education jewel. Charter schools, magnet schools, you know, as you were saying, kind of the traditional public schools. At the same time, every single one of those schools has to be held accountable. And if you're a bad charter, then you don't deserve our support. You shouldn't be in business. That's the focus. The focus is a great education, an excellent education for every student. It goes back to the theme of race to the top. And as I say in many meetings when I'm sitting in the Roosevelt Room in the White House, this isn't a race to mediocrity. This isn't a race to, oh, we're just gonna be okay. This is a race to the top, and every single child deserves an excellent education. And as I've gone all over the country, I've gone to schools with student populations that most people have given up on. You, know, you take an example of Graham Road Elementary School. It's in Fairfax County. Now, Fairfax County, I don't know, there may be people here from Fairfax County. I used to live there. Is, uh, has a high-performing school system. But at the same time, Graham Road has a population that's about 95% African-American and Latino. 80% of that population is on free or reduced school lunch. So that tells you something about the socioeconomic background of many of the students who are going there. Five years ago, the principal of Graham Road decided we are going to turn this school around. And collaborating with the teachers there, professional development and support for teachers, the use of smart use of data, all the things that we've talked about, we know are elements that can turn things around, they've brought into their school. And now, 100% of those sixth graders at that school have passed the state reading test. 96% of them passed the state math test. Those are standards, and those are results that you won't see in most places in the country. So we know we can do it. We just have to have the will 
to pass the reform, to do what's necessary to push past the roadblocks to get it done for those kids as a moral imperative, for those kids, for their economic security and their future and our country if we are seriously going to compete and if they are going to be ready to go to college. The, I want to, before we close, I want to get to the, what happened to higher ed because it got buried in the healthcare bill and it's actually one of the best things that's happened in the last uh, couple of years. But I do want to get back to this question of inequality um, that we're talking about. There's, there's a reform issue and there's a money issue. Um, you know, I, my wife and I moved to a great school district in Bethesda, Maryland. Our schools are fantastic and I've made me realize that we do have vouchers in America but they're distributed by real estate agents. Uh, and that if you cross Western Avenue from DC, you are crossing into one of the best school districts in the country. Now DC's getting better, but it's still a vast gap. Um, I was struck when Jeff was talking uh, where you take kids who are facing multiple challenges from the way they grow up, the crime in their neighborhoods, the difficulties their families face, and then you cross into these school districts where uh, there's a virtuous cycle, because even people who don't have kids know that good school is built into their property values. So it's hard to cut taxes where I live, and not just because we're a whole bunch of liberals. Um, how do you begin to address this? I mean, it's, it's not just, we can talk about excellence that happens in a place like uh, that Jeff Canada has set up, but we're talking about thousands of schools. How do you begin to get a handle on this? A couple of different things, and just an aside on, you know, people buy homes for school districts. And when I was still in the Senate and working with Senator Kennedy and the bankruptcy bill, we were debating for many, many, many years. And one of the significant factors that we saw, so many people going into bankruptcy because they had stretched a little too hard, a little too far to try and buy that that home in that excellent school district. And you can't blame them for trying to do that, but the reality is that it sh you shouldn't have to pick and choose your way through school districts and buy with excessive home places with excessive home prices so that your kid can get a good education. So that means that equity is incredibly important in the work that we're doing. We started pushing on this through Race to the Top, and a focus on those applications that were coming in, about 28% of the points awarded to applicants is, are focused, those points are focused on equity, and ensuring that resources, teacher resources, um, access to very different kinds of programs, that those school districts were focused on greater equity for all the students in their school districts. That's something that we've built into the blueprint that we've put out for reform of No Child Left Behind, or as it's really known, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And you combine that with the fact that the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education is saying, no joke, we, we mean it. We are going to enforce the law. And if you are adhering to loopholes in terms of comparability for different schools in your school district, and you're playing a game so that one school can get so much more while students elsewhere get so much less, we're going to hold you accountable for that. If you're not focused appropriately on equitable distribution of resources within your school district, there will be less flexibility for you as a school district using federal funds. 
At the same time that we're using and trying to pull those levers, we're also trying to scale up what works. So Jeff often laughs about the fact that one day he was watching TV and he heard then candidate Obama say, you know, I went to the Harlem Children's Zone, I know that it works, I've seen some of the evidence, and we want to scale that up, promise neighborhoods. And Jeff was like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, it's prime time for me. <laughs> but we've built that into our education agenda and we built it into our budget. What we've done is establish a Promise Neighborhood program. Every Promise Neighborhood won't look like the Harlem Children's Zone. It's very specific to the, the, the factors, the variables in different communities. But we've established a $10 million fund for planning for 20 Promise Neighborhoods thus far. We already have 320 applicants for those 20 slots. And I can tell you, last winter, I attended a conference that Jeff and Angela Glover Blackwell hosted to bring not just sing a single entity, but, but groups that would come together and say from the business sector, from the philanthropic sector, um, from our school system, we are prepared to put together an application for a promised neighborhood. There were over a thousand communities represented at that conference. That tells you the kind of hunger that exists out there for the wraparound services that Jeff and Roland were talking about. And you know, those of you in Hollywood may think I need to get out more, but I told Jeff, I said, <laughs> this is like being at a Hollywood premiere. I mean, literally, there were rope lines and people were trying to break down the door, I'm not exaggerating, to get into this conference because people recognize that this works. So we're supporting Promise Neighborhoods and scaling those ideas up, and we want to grow that larger. Obviously, 20 Promise Neighborhoods won't do the trick, but at the same time, using the different levers we have around equity using public funds right now. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the uh, reform of the student loan program, which is a big deal. But in particular, I'd like you to address something that is not talked about as much, but I know some folks in the administration are interested in, um, which is the importance of getting people one or two years of additional schooling uh, after uh, high school. Uh, because that alone can make an enormous difference in people's chances to get much better paying jobs. Basically, the difference between being able to support a family or not. Uh, so I'd like to talk about both focuses, the larger, you know, the, the question of how the student loan program has been fixed, but how we can do more and the focus on community colleges as playing an important role in that. Let's see, a couple of, of things. One. When we started thinking about higher education we, and realizing that community colleges are a under a vastly, well, a, a well-used resource that the federal government doesn't do enough to support, that about six million students go to community colleges. It's a huge part of our higher education system. That, and they do it for different reasons, for affordability, because they want to go to a two-year institution and get some sort of certification. Um, in many cases, it's moving people along a career ladder because they want to go to a two-year institution and then transfer to a four-year institution. But one of the things that we wanted to do there as well is to drive greater reform and innovation to ensure that the programs, that the curriculum at community colleges well tied to what's going on in the private sector. When people leave, we want to make sure that they have the, 
the wherewithal that they have a credential that is usable in the private sector when they go out to get a job or so that they can transfer more quickly to a four-year institution. So we wanted and to put dollars around reform and that became the, the root of the American Graduation Initiative. In turn, there is broader reform around the, our student loan system that people have been fighting for literally for decades. I mean, thus far, or up until now, taxpayers have been unnecessarily subsidizing our student aid programs, and it hasn't made them more efficient. It hasn't given people greater sense of comfort or peace of mind that I'll be able to get a loan for my son or daughter. We recognize that if we reform that and went to a direct lending program, and still allowed for competition from the private sector, the private lending sector, but we originated those loans through the federal government, and in fact, we've already been doing this quite successfully, that it would save us about $68 billion. You can imagine the pushback that we got when we tried to reform the system, but we were able to link this in the reconciliation reform, in the reconciliation bill when we were doing healthcare reform and to get this passed, and in doing so, it gave us money that we could put into both deficit reduction and turning around our higher education system. That investment I was talking about in community colleges and the American Graduation Initiative, we were able to put our toe in the water there, not as big as we want for technical reasons and parliamentary reasons that I won't begin to bore you with right now, but we, we, made, we were able to get a great start there. Also to strengthen the Pell Grant system, again, that issue of access, how can we make sure that students can go to college, and also to make sure that that debt burden that's been on so many students that shapes their careers, the average student loan burden for students is about $23,000. If you're from a lower middle class family, that is an enormous amount of debt to walk out of college with. So to, uh, to be able to lift some of that burden for them and some level of debt forgiveness also became a part of it. And then finally, the support for minority serving institutions. Historically black colleges and universities, um, Native American institutions, Hispanic serving institutions that educate so many of our students of color. They're working overtime, they're doing it with less. We wanted to support them. We were able to get all of that done and reform the student aid system to one that we think is much more efficient, will work much better for students and families, give people a greater sense of accountability and peace of mind and comfort that they will be able to get the loans that they, that they need. And I'll, I'll wrap this part up by saying this. The reason we believe this is so important is because one, we are falling behind in the number of students that we enroll in college and that we graduate. We're about 15th in the world behind our peers. And that is a slip over the last generation where we were number one in the world. This goes back to what I was saying about innovation, growth, and competition for our country, and the fact that half of the um, fastest growing jobs in the country require a bachelor's degree now. When we look to 2016, we recognize that many of those jobs are going to require a graduate degree. If we don't have kids ready for college, K through 12 reform, and we aren't able to get them into college and make sure that they complete and graduate from college or community college or some form of higher education certification, we are again doing them a disservice and doing our country a disservice at the same time. See, if you'd snuck immigration, go ahead, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking if you could have snuck cap and trade in immigration reform into the healthcare bill, you could take a few days off, but 
The well, I've got a secret. <laughs> um, there's a kind of philosophical issue I want you to grapple with, and it's a strange kind of discussion in our politics, or at least it's strange to me. Um, on the one hand, um, government, the federal government, your administration will be criticized for not doing enough to fix the schools, whether it's not being tough enough on the teachers or, or tough enough in some other area. On the other side, uh, people say the federal government has too much power. How dare the federal government you know, do all these things? So for example, you're going after the 5% uh, worst performing schools. Can you ever imagine a day where the federal government would step in as some states do and say, this school just has to shut down? How can you, if you're not willing to have a very substantial amount of power there, how can the federal government be accountable uh, for the results that are being asked of it? Well, with the dollars that we have put in place with re regard to our lowest performing schools, one, we said to people, look, there are about 7,000 kids who are dropping out of school every day. And almost every time I use that s statistic, I have to double check it because it's hard to fathom. 7,000 children every day dropping out of school. And most of those kids are going to the 2,000 schools in the country that are the dropout factories. What we are determined to do is turn around the 5%, which accounts for about 5,000 schools. And we aren't saying we're the federal government and we're here to sh shut down your school. We're saying we're the federal government and we are here to help support local decisions, the decisions that you as parents, as a school board, and as teachers, and as students are making about these schools. We aren't, again, going in with this cookie cutter and saying, do it this way, close the school down. We're saying, here are different examples, different ways that you can use federal support to go about doing this, whether it's a transformative model, which involves you know, greater time on task, longer school day, a whole list of other issues, or if it's a turnaround, which has gained, um, has garnered a lot of controversy, but when you look at the situation, the conditions those students are in, you recognize that we have to do something, or it's a school closure. We are giving opportunity and flexibility to school districts to make those kinds of decisions. And the reality is that when we see parents go across town and see what a good school looks like, as compared to the kinds of schools that their students are in, where 22% of the class can't pass a math test, Parents are like, yeah, sign me up for that. That's what I want. The idea that these communities, that these parents, that we don't want the best for our children, the best education, the best leg up, the chance for opportunity for our kids, for our students, that's simply untrue. What we have to do is provide people with the tools and the support so that they can get it done and get it done based on the best, using the best rationale for their community. And I want to say thank you for giving us an education today. And God bless your teacher mom. Thank you all very much. Thank you.